You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Let's now to turn uh, in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 10 through 17 of this text. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10 through 17. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the goodness that is your word, this precious gift to us. And Father, we do thank you that we live in a country and in a time in which the, the scriptures are so accessible and readily available to us. Father, we know that this is a privilege that most of the saints throughout the millennia have not possessed. But Lord, we possess such a treasure, Lord, just by having your word right in front of us at this moment so that we can hear from you, guided by your spirit into all truth. Father, we pray that as we turn our attention to 2 Timothy 3 this morning, Father, that your word would speak to us. Lord, that you would give me the words in such a way that would be profitable for the building up of your church. And Father, we pray that your word would do what you've promised that it will do, that it will pierce our hearts, that it would conform us ever more to Jesus Christ, that it would be profitable in the building up of your church, making us complete and equipped for every good work you've called us to do. Father, we pray this particularly as we prepare for the launch of Redemption Church. Father, we know that there is a great work before us, a community that needs to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that in these precious months before we launch, that you have used your word to help form us and shape us so that we might be faithful in the work that you've called us to do in reaching our city and our world with the good news of Christ. Father, be with us at this hour and give us understanding by your spirit and point us all to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's interesting that Americans have this fascination with the individual and what the individual can accomplish. You know, we are driven by these stories that 
that, that put a human being, a singular person at, against all odds, against every circumstances. And, and we love hearing how through their grit and how through their determination that they're able to overcome all that's in their way. We love stories in which humans triumph over unimaginable obstacles. And of course, we see this in movies all the time, right? Whether you're John McClane in the movie Die Hard, who literally guns down anything in his way, or whether it's, you know, Sandra Bullock in the movie Gravity, floating through space, trying to survive to get back to Earth. These stories of a singular individual accomplishing incredible results and incredible foes, it's just, it, it captivates us. We love hearing about how the individual from within their own strength can overcome. Now, I, I suspect, just from the, the little bit of training I've had, that this idea of kind of the self-made man, this, this idea of self-determination, philosophically probably originates from the idea of transcendentalism. Now, you might have to go back to American Lit class or American History class to remember what transcendentalism is, but it's a, it's a uniquely American philosophy that was kind of birthed as a reaction to modernity, and this romantic movement really encapsulated the autonomy of the individual to set their own course, to establish their own fate. Kind of was popular around 1836 with the men like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. In fact, Emerson wrote a book called, an essay called Self-Reliance. Self-Reliance. I'll read you a quote of what he said. He said, and truly it demands something godlike in him who has cast off the common motives of humanity and has ventured to trust himself for a taskmaster. High be his heart, faithful his will, clear his sight, that he may in good earnest be doctrine, society, law to himself, that a simple purpose may be to him as strong as iron necessity is to others. Emerson goes on to say in that essay, Self-Reliance, he says, the power which resides in him is new in nature, and none but he knows what that is which he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. Now, Hopefully, you, you've read a little bit of the Bible enough and you, you've, you've grown enough in your Christian faith that hearing something like that should send some trigger warnings in your brain saying, all right, that's, that's sketchy. I'm not sure I buy that. Well, you shouldn't buy that because Colossians 2.8 should come to your mind, right? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And indeed, as we think about transcendentalism, this idea that, that you are kind of the captain of your own ship, that you can be you, that idea is deeply antithetical to the gospel itself. In fact, it's the complete opposite of what the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ instructs us, which shows us that we aren't self-reliant, but we're very much God-dependent upon all things. That you can't fix yourself, you can't save yourself, you can't give yourself your own purpose. All of this comes from our creator, our designer, the God who is in heaven. And that our only hope for salvation doesn't come from us mustering up enough energy and purpose, but by giving up our life and laying down our life and repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ as our salvation. 
So even though this idea of transcendentalism, we would probably all reject flat out, but I think that this philosophy has had so much of an impact on American culture that it's affected a lot of Christians in sometimes imperceptible ways. Just because we live in this American Western culture, sometimes it affects the way we think and the way we approach life without necessarily realizing it's shaping us and it's molding us. And I think it's even shaped the way we think about our growth in Christ. That even though as Christians we would affirm, yes, grace alone, faith alone, but when we think about our own sanctification, as we think about our own growth in grace, we tend to think of that in self-reliance type terms, don't we? All right, well, if I'm going to be a faithful Christian, then I need to, I need to get in the Word. I need to get a good prayer life. I need to, to, to learn more about the scriptures, maybe read a few good books, and I need to be disciplined, and I need to hone myself in. I got to shape myself up so that I can be a strong Christian person. That tends to be the way we think, but that's deeply the opposite of the gospel that we confessed for faith, that we confess that we are dependent upon God for our salvation, but yet when we get to the Christian life, we think that we're not dependent upon anybody but ourselves, deeply opposite. And again, I think that's part of the culture that we've grown in, that, and that, we, that we think that if we can just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, whatever that means, uh, but if we could do that, then, then we're going to be strong Christian people. We will grow in Christ. But I'm convinced that we must repent of this attitude and that just as we think through our justification, our, our initial confession in Christ, we must also have the same level of dependence when it comes to our sanctification. That we must be just as dependent upon God, upon his spirit, for the work of grace in our lives to grow us and mature us and to make us holy, conforming us to the image of Christ as we did when we first believed. And that part of being dependent upon God means that we are dependent upon the people of God. Meaning that as we think through the Christian life, you need the other people in this room. You need the church. You need to be in a covenant community that loves you and that can help form you in the scriptures and build you up into maturity in Christ. That community and discipleship go hand in hand together. A lot of times we, we separate things out that shouldn't be separated, but, but the scriptures, and I hope to show you this from 2 Timothy this morning, the scriptures show that community and discipleship go together. They go together and that if we as Redemption Church want to be a, a church that focuses on community, on discipleship in the church, seeing people grow, we must press in deeper to the nature and function of community in our own sanctifications, our own walk with Christ. So as we prepare for signups for community groups that are coming up in a few weeks, and as we prepare for community groups, which will be launching when the church publicly launches, I want to take the next three weeks to kind of flesh out a little bit from God's word the nature of biblical community. And so today we're going to think through the connection of community and discipleship. Next week we'll think about community and mission. And then thirdly, we'll think about community and holiness. And we're going to flesh out just what community groups look like at Redemption Church and the biblical purpose of community in your life and in my life and in the life of our congregation. So today we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, an important passage probably one of the most important statements in this text on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. But it's interesting here, as Paul is giving these instructions to Timothy, 
we see community and discipleship come together in some unique ways. So in sum, here's what the, the sermon's about in a sentence. Biblical community fosters discipleship through imitation and instruction. Imitation and instruction. And those two words will form the structure as we approach the text this morning. So let's, let's consider firstly imitation, following the example of faithful Christians. And we see this particularly in verse 10 through 13. Now, when you hear the idea of imitation and that part of being a disciple in community in the same church means that we are called to imitate one another, that might make you a little uncomfortable. Because as you look at your life and as I look at mine, I, I see areas in my life where I'm so disobedient, where I'm not faithful as I need to be. And the thought that other Christians in this congregation are looking to me for what it means to be a faithful Christian, that can be a scary thought for me and I'm sure as well for you. But nevertheless, one of the functions of the way community and discipleship interact and intersect is through this idea of imitation. And it's something the Apostle Paul never shies away from. He never hesitates to urge other believers, other Christians, to follow in his example. We see it here in, first, in 2 Timothy, but we see it elsewhere. Philippians chapter 3 is perhaps a good example. You can turn there if you like or just listen to the passage. But in Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul writes to the Philippian church. He says, follow my example. Do what I do. Pray like I pray. Teach like I teach. Hold to the same beliefs that I believe. Obey like I obey. Now that that's, uh, might come across as a bit of an arrogant thing to say. You know, how, Paul, you know, are you really worthy of imitation? And, and you might be thinking the same way. You know, if I were to say that to somebody, that would be maybe a little condescending or arrogant. And of course, he's Paul. He was an apostle. He was called by Jesus on the road to Damascus. I'm just a, an ordinary Christian who should imitate me in my life. But yet, we see that Paul, even though he urges others to imitate him, never confesses to be perfect in himself. In fact, he urges others to follow him in the midst of his sinfulness. So look at, uh, again, you'll have to turn there, but immediately right before he urges in Philippians 3 for the church to follow him, to imitate him, he says right a couple of verses before this, he says he didn't have it all together. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So Paul is pursuing Christ. He's trying to live the Christian life, but even he acknowledges that I'm, I've still got a long ways to go before I attain the prize of the upper calling of Christ Jesus. I still have a long ways to go. I have, it's not perfected in me yet. And yet a couple verses later, he says, imitate me. How do we hold those two together? And as we think about what it means for you and I to live our lives as an example to others within this body, and to other Christians, how do, we, how do we interact with those two? Well, there are areas of faithfulness in your life. We all have them where we're more faithful. And then, of course, there are areas we are disobedient. But one of the most valuable things that we can do for one another is watch one another fight sin. That can be such a powerful thing to watch, can't it? That when you see a brother or sister who's open about their sinfulness, who acknowledges that we don't have it all together, but yet to watch them confess their sin, to watch them repent of their sin, to watch them put to death the deeds of the body. 
That is a powerful example. One of the most powerful examples we can set is not just showing each other how to live rightly, but showing each other how to repent. And that's, I think, what Paul is getting at here. And, and as he's instructing Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, you see, being an example as a Christian doesn't require your perfection, but it does require your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to daily walk with the Lord and repent of sin. But as we look at Paul's counsel here to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 and following, we, it's impo- it would be helpful for us if we understood a little bit of Timothy's backstory and Timothy and Paul's relationship. So as we think about Timothy, Timothy was uh, born of, of mixed parents. He had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, and he was a native of Lystra. And it's most likely that Timothy came to know Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, most likely through his first missionary journey through that city. And so immediately it seems that Paul developed a relationship with Timothy and saw a great deal of potential in him. And when Paul ended up deciding not to take John Mark with him anymore on mission trips, uh, he decided to bring Timothy along. And so Timothy became one of his very closest companions. Uh, In many ways, he was a protege of the Apostle Paul and, and sent out by the Apostle Paul on his behalf for a lot of different mission assignments. Most recently here in this text, He was sent to the city of Ephesus to help lead that church, to deal with false doctrine, to help raise up and establish leaders from within that church. And it's here through Paul and Timothy's separation that Paul is now writing to Timothy in this letter, and he's writing to Timothy knowing that he might not ever see the young man again. This brother in the faith, this 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 relationship that had gone through many fiery trials and difficulties and obstacles. They have, in many ways, been brothers in arms in the cause of the gospel across the world. And now he writes to Timothy knowing that he might not see him again. He hopes he will. If you look down in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Do your best to come to me soon. But Paul seems to be writing, particularly towards the end of this letter, with the the bitter awareness that his life is coming to an end, that he's not going to make it out of this one, that the Lord is getting ready to call him home. And so in many ways, he's giving Timothy these last couple chapters, a final charge, a final admonition. And with that, in verse 10, he urges Timothy to follow in his example. And look at what he says to follow. It's quite over-encompassing, isn't it? Look at verse 10. He says, you have followed my teaching, right? Paul has instructed Timothy. He's made sure that he's heard the scriptures, that he's, he's heard the, the sound teaching of the gospel, and he's been entrusted with that as a messenger and minister of God to share in that same teaching. So, so Paul says, follow in my teaching. He says, follow in my conduct, Timothy, in the same way that I've lived, in the same way I've handled obstacles and trials, you handle them in the same way. Be gracious, be merciful, be loving, be kind, as I have been. He says, Timothy, follow my aim in life. Live for the same purpose, Timothy, that that, that I've lived for. And I haven't lived for myself, Paul says. I've I've lived for for Christ, to live as Christ, to die as gain, he would say in Philippians. So so Paul says, Timothy, don't live for anything else but but Jesus. He is the only purpose worth living for. So follow that, that aim in life to make much of Christ through the advancement of the gospel through all the peoples of the earth. He says, Timothy, follow my faith. 
hold and trust in Christ no matter what obstacles come your way, no matter what persecutions and sufferings you endure. Remain, continue in the faith. He says, Timothy, follow me in my patience. My patience. Anyone who's been in ministry knows that that gospel ministry requires patience. That there are moments in which a minister can faithfully teach, faithfully instruct, faithfully proclaim the gospel, and that gospel seems to bear very little immediate fruit. And yet Paul, throughout his missionary journeys, knows the value of patience, of being faithful in your ministry, in your teaching, in your preaching, and trusting God with that fruit, being patient in the ministry. He says, follow me in my love. The way I've loved the church, the way I've loved you, the way I've given up myself for others. And he says, follow me in my steadfastness. Be firm. Be stable. Don't shake. Don't wander. Don't don't give up just because the Christian faith gets hard. But but be steadfast in your commitment to Christ and your commitment to his churches. And then he says, Timothy, follow me in my persecutions and sufferings that I've endured. Paul expects Timothy to share in the same lot of suffering that his own ministry experienced. And so he urges Timothy to follow him in in every way. I mean, these are all encompassing, not just in his teaching, but in his life. And you think about the time Paul and Timothy spent together, not just doing Bible study, but eating meals together, not eating meals together, going hungry together being persecuted together, being locked up in jail cells together. And all throughout all those ups and downs in Paul's ministry, Paul says, Timothy, you've seen me in it all. You've seen me at my best moments. You've seen me in my worst moments. Follow me as I follow Christ. Now, as we think through this idea of what it means for you to be an example to others and what it means for me to be an example to others, this is, this is difficult because true community means bringing others into the rhythms of your life. Community requires both vulnerability and authenticity. It's more than just telling people what you know. It's letting people watch how you live. That's discipleship. And that's what Paul and Timothy's relationship were. They were living life together, and through Paul's example, it was instructing Timothy. Now, as we hope to to start community groups, community groups will, of course, be a vehicle for instruction. We want to, to be teaching the Bible, and of course, we'll talk about that later on in the passage. But another important aspect of community groups we hope that will be developed is this idea of imitation, of being an example, of of really being a community together in which we're not only listening to each other talk about the scriptures and apply the scriptures, but we're actually watching one another in life, that we're being an example to one another, that, that those who are more mature in the faith would be an example to those who are younger, and those who are younger could even be an example to those who are older. It's one of the reasons why we are designing community groups to be multi generational so that we can learn from one another across generations because we all have areas in which we can learn and and imitate and areas in which we're more faithful and areas where we're disobedient. And we need that sort of community where we can be vulnerable with each other. Now, for some of this, this is, this is very difficult to think through because you might be wondering, well, well, how do I develop a relationship with someone like Paul and Timothy had, where they lived in community together, where they taught the scriptures together? How, how do I seek out relationships, even with people in Redemption Church, for this purpose of discipleship? Not just so that, again, we can teach the scriptures together, but watch each other in the way we live our lives. Well, let me provide just some real practical advice. 
So for those of you who are more mature in Christ, you've been walking with Jesus for an extended period of time. If that's you, seek out those who are weaker in the faith. Seek them out and invest in them. Maybe it's inviting them out to lunch. Maybe it's inviting them to a Bible study with you. Maybe it's in inviting them out to, to coffee. But, but do so in such a way in which you're reaching those who are weaker and, and you're encouraging them and you're, you're admonishing them to pursue Christ with greater intensity and richness. And then live your life in such a way with them that you are providing an example to them. There are a lot of young Christians who don't even know how to read their Bibles. There's a lot of young Christians who don't even know the first thing about a personal prayer life. Those of us who are more mature in Christ by God's grace should seek out those who are younger and show them the ropes. That's part of what God has called us to do is to to help other people follow Christ more faithfully. And so if you're more mature in Christ, again, seek out those who are weaker. Don't wait for them to come to you. And for those of you who are younger saints, don't just sit back and wait for a more mature person to come and invest in you. You know, one of the things that uh, is annoying about summertime are flies and gnats. In fact, my children don't know how to shut the door when they go outside. So it feels like all week long, I'm just like killing flies. I mean, it's been like a, a massacre at our house. It's flies buzzing around. Gnats are annoying, but younger Christians should be like gnats around more mature Christians. In other words, just hang around them, bug them, <laughs> hang out with them, just show up where they're at, pester them, right? So you don't have to sit back and wait, well, I wish I had somebody to, to disciple me or invest in me. Go, go find somebody. Go find a, a believer, a man or a woman in this church that you value their relationship with God and you look up to them and say, hey, man, I, I'm struggling with being a dad. I don't know the first thing about it. You've been a dad. Your kids are out of the house now. You seem to have done a faithful job. Come help me. Come talk to me about how I can be a faithful Christian father to my, to my children. And the same thing for ladies, right? Whatever your stage of life, just go and, and ask someone more mature who's been faithful in those areas and just say, I, I just want to learn. Teach me. Counsel me. Give me instruction. Take me to the scripture. Show me how to be faithful. It's almost like discipleship in the church tends to be an awkward middle school dance. You know what I'm talking about? It's like the boys are lined up on one side, the girls are lined up on the other side, and everybody wants to dance and have a good time, but nobody wants to be the first one to make the move, right? So they just kind of awkwardly stare at each other, and then everybody goes home at the end of the night. That shouldn't be the way discipleship in the church is, but it often is. It's like we're so afraid to actually initiate something with one another that we end up just not doing anything. And so whether you are more mature in Christ, whether you're younger, let me encourage you to initiate this sort of relationship that fosters this godly imitation from one another, this discipling relationship with one another. But let me give a word of caution in this, as, as we should strive to imitate each other as we're imitating Christ. Again, no one's perfect that even the most mature in Christ will have areas of blind spots in their life where they're, they're unfaithful. And perhaps God might be bringing you into their life to help reveal those, because even if you're mature, we still all have a long ways to go. So let me urge you that there is no perfect model other than the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me. Here's Paul again, encouraging the church to imitate him. Be imitators of me, 
as I am of Christ. So as I replicate Christ, as I replicate the fruit of the Spirit in my life, as I replicate the character of Christ, follow me in that regard, and where I'm disobedient and sinful, ignore that, and help me repent of that. So that's a word of caution as we think through imitation. But, but it's interesting as we continue to look through 2 Timothy here, of course, he's urging imitation. He's urging Timothy, follow me in my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life. And then he kind of camps out on this idea of persecution in verse 11. Look at what he says. He says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured yet from the Lord, from, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. You know, we're not entirely sure all what happened in each of those cities exactly. We might be able to pick up some from the book of Acts, but Timothy knew. In fact, Timothy was probably there for most of those. And as Paul shares those specific cities, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, I'm sure memories were going through Timothy's mind. And he's remembering Paul's faithfulness, his conduct, his steadfastness, even in the face of persecution. And Paul does not want Timothy to be oblivious to the fact that the Christian life will require suffering. It's part of gospel ministry. It's part of what it means to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Again, Jesus never shied away from the realities of the cost of discipleship, and neither does Paul want Timothy to be naive either. Timothy, it's going to be hard, and look at what he says in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And there's a lot of people that have like a life verse and you know, they find a life verse in the Bible and, and they say, this is, this is kind of my life verse. And, uh, you know, a lot of people use Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare, not for evil to give you a future and a hope, a beautiful verse often ripped screaming and kicking out of context most of the time. <laughs> but I don't think I've ever seen anybody choose second Timothy three twelve for a life verse. <laughs> Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Doesn't make a cute coffee cup like Jeremiah 29, 11. But nevertheless, the, the scripture is true. And Paul does not want Timothy to be naive to the reality that if you're going to be a faithful follower of Christ, Timothy, if you're going to follow in my example, expect suffering, expect persecution, because we are preaching a gospel that the world hates. They don't understand. They're in opposition to it. And as we proclaim it to them in love, praying that the Lord would change their hearts and lead them to repentance and faith, prepare for persecution. And look at what he says in verse 13. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, there are a lot of teachers out there today that will tell you that this verse doesn't exist in the Bible. Only the Jeremiah 29 11s, right? Those, are, those verses exist in the Bible, but not 2 Timothy 3.12. At least they won't talk like it does. But Paul does not want us to be deceived by false teachers, but he presents the reality of Christian discipleship, that part of being a disciple in Jesus is going through seasons of great suffering and difficulty. And that doesn't mean those seasons of difficulty and suffering lack joy. But again, we must be prepared that suffering is an inevitable part of discipleship. So what does that have to do with imitation? Well, one of the most powerful ways you and I can set an example to each other is by going through suffering in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way. You know, as a, a pastor, I've learned more from the dying than the living. I've watched godly saints fight their battle with cancer only to die. I've watched Christian families mourn and grieve the loss of loved ones that they didn't want to see go. 
and yet trust in Christ. You see, like Paul's suffering, our own suffering in our own lives provides a powerful opportunity for discipleship to show each other where the true treasure of our heart is because it is often through the blaze of our affliction that scorches up everything else so that all that is left to be seen in our lives is our true treasure. And if your true treasure is Christ, what a powerful testimony, what a powerful example you are setting for your other believers in Christ. That if you can go through those seasons of persecution and suffering and sadness and grief and loss and yet say, blessed be the name of the Lord. What a powerful example you are setting for all of us of what it means to really keep Christ as your treasure and as your joy. You see, when Christ is your treasure alone, it is most beautifully displayed through suffering, which I think is why God brings suffering into our lives, is so that his glory might be shown and revealed and testified in our lives. So we've thought through what it means to imitate this idea of following the example of other faithful Christians. But there's a second, second part here in this text of the intersection of discipleship and community, and, and that's instruction. Learn the scriptures from faithful teachers. Learn the scriptures from faithful teachers. It's not just enough to set an example. There must be teaching and instruction involved. And look at what Paul says in verse 14 here. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. You see, as Paul is urging Timothy to follow his example, he's urging just as intently that he would follow in the instruction of the gospel that he's received. And it's interesting to note that this whom in verse 14 is not singular, but plural, knowing from whom the multiple people in your life, Timothy, that have instructed you and taught the scriptures and have built you up in the gospel truths. You see, community should foster biblical instruction in each of our lives. That you should have people in your life, more than just a pastor, but other brothers and sisters, members of the church, who are bringing the scriptures to bear in your life and urging you to continue to walk in the midst of them. And he urges Timothy to do just that, because as we look at Timothy's own life, of course, he's received the sound teaching of the gospel from the Apostle Paul, but he's also received it from countless other peoples, many whom we don't know the names. But but here, as Paul is addressing Timothy, I think Paul has in mind his mother and grandmother. You look at uh, verse, verse 15, he talks about how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. We see earlier on in the book, you can look there, look to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we see that Paul mentions the faith of Timothy's mother and grandmother. Look at first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So, so Timothy had the wonderful blessing of having a godly mother and grandmother who taught him the scriptures from his childhood. And if you have been so fortunate to have godly Christian parents who have made you acquainted with the sacred writings from your infancy, you are blessed beyond measure. 
And if you have children, may you aspire to be those types of parents that instruct your children in the word of the Lord. And Timothy had that privilege. He's been brought up on the word of God, on the sacred scriptures, the Bible. And Timothy has been built up into maturity, made wise into salvation. You see, it's interesting that Paul says that the scriptures are indispensable when it comes to our own Christian growth. That if you ignore the Bible and you refuse to read it or you're not disciplined in reading it and consuming it for yourself and letting it soak in your heart and in your mind, then you're going to condemn yourself to a life of spiritual immaturity. It is only through pressing deep into the word of God that the spirit uses the scripture to build us up to maturity, to make us wise into salvation. This is what the scriptures are for. It's God's gift to us to make us mature. So a part of this dynamic of community and discipleship means that we must center our community around the instruction of God's word which is one of the reasons why the preaching of the word is so central in the life of the church. But, but beyond just the preaching event, we want our lives together to be evidenced by the scriptures instructing in one another's lives, whether it's through community groups, whether it's through a Bible study, whether it's through personal discipleship, that the scriptures, we should be bringing the scriptures to bear in our lives so that we are building each other up in such a way that we're making each other wise unto salvation. Now, why, why is the scripture so important? And here in verse 16 and 17, Paul gives us, I think, what is perhaps the most important two verses on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture in the Bible. Hugely important. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, we could spend a lot of time on these two verses, but let me, let me briefly break them down a little bit in four sections. One of the first things we see about the scriptures, and it's important, is Paul emphasizes the totality of scripture. The totality of scripture. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, all scripture. That, those three little letters are hugely important, right? All scripture is breathed out by God. So as Paul is, is emphasizing Timothy's discipleship, he's emphasizing that, Timothy, as you grow in your knowledge of Christ and of salvation, as you continue in the faith, you must know all of the scriptures. And all of the scripture is authoritative and inspired by God and ought to be bared upon your life. You see, we live in a day and age of cherry-picking scriptures that we like and ignoring scriptures we don't like. I like what the Bible says about love and social justice. I'll take those verses. Those are great. But, oh, man, on gender, homosexuality, that's a little outdated. I'll cast those away. Right? We live in a culture that's doing this all the time, choosing and picking which verses we like and which verses we don't like. But, but Paul is clear that as we think about the inspiration and authority of the Bible, we must understand it in its totality, meaning that as we look at one section of the Scripture, we must understand it within the context of the entire Bible. We must make ourselves acquainted with all of the scriptures, even the parts of the scripture that makes us a little uncomfortable and challenges the way we think. We should read those even more carefully. This is one of the reasons why at Redemption Church we are passionate about the practice of expository preaching and how 
in the fall, once we publicly launch, we're going to begin just walking verse by verse through books of the Bible. And there's a lot of advantages to that. But one of the advantages is it just forces us to take seriously, verse 16, that all of the scriptures are breathed out by God. And oftentimes when you begin to work systematically verse by verse through a book of the Bible, what you discover is there's a lot of verses and chapters in the Bible that none of us would ever just pick to go to, but yet it's God's word and we need to hear it. We need to hear it proclaimed and we need to put it into practice. And so expository preaching is the wonderful gift of not allowing ourselves to skip over hard passages, difficult truths, because all of it is God's Word. And that leads to the second aspect of these verses I want to draw out. Not just the totality of Scripture, but the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture. Look at what Paul says. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. God inspired. Paul actually kind of coins a phrase here, theonuestos, this idea of God and spirit, he kind of combines the word together and he's, he's testifying to the fact that, that all of the scriptures is inspired by God. Though it's written by different human authors, each of those human authors is carried along by the Holy Spirit in such a way that they write the very word of God. And Paul is adamant that all of the scriptures have this level of inspiration, not just some. Again, going back to our difficulty in handling the scriptures at times, we tend to pick and choose which verses we think are more inspired than others. And that's a terrible way. It's incorrect way to handle the scriptures. One of the ways Bible publishers have kind of perpetuated this mindset is through red letter editions of the Bible. Maybe you have one of those, right? It's, it takes the, the gospels and if it's the word of Jesus, man, we're going to put that in red because that's, that's really inspired. And the rest of it, it's just black. You know, it's black text. It's not just normal Bible. That's, there's no degrees of inspiration as we think through the biblical text. The words of Christ are just as much inspired as the word of the Apostle Paul and as the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. All of the scriptures is theonuestos, breathed out by God. And all of it should be considered as such. And that leads to the third aspect of the scriptures that we need to draw out today. And that's the profitability of Scripture, the profitability of Scripture. He, he talks about how the Scripture is useful. It is God's gift to us for the building up of his church, for the building up of his saints. Look at what he says. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Scripture is useful. It's good. It's, it's God's gift to us for building up the church to maturity. It's grounding us in the knowledge of his word, and we should teach it. We should correct one another with it. We should train one another in righteousness because this is why God gave us his word, so that it would make us wise unto salvation. And then finally, we see the effect of Scripture. So we've seen the totality of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the profitability of Scripture, and then the effect of Scripture. So what happens when in the community of the church the, the Scriptures are taught, that the, the community of the church is centered on the Word of God and its instruction? What's the effect of this good, breathed-out Word being brought to bear on each other's lives? Well, look at verse 17, the effect of it. It's that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It builds us up to maturity. Again, if you want to grow and be mature in Christ, you must know his word. 
The scriptures are the means in which God has ordained you to be built up in Christ, to conform you to the image of Christ. So, with that being said, if we at Redemption Church want to see a culture of disciple-making, and if we want to see rapid spiritual growth in each other's lives, it will come through the careful and clear instruction of the Word of God, both in a formal sense, from a pulpit or from a teacher teaching a group, but also in individual lives and conversations. We should be referencing the scripture. We should be counseling each other with the scripture. We should be discussing the scripture. That the nature of our community together is not just imitation, but imitation and instruction together. And when both of those things are brought to bear, when we're living life vulnerably and authenticity with one another so that we can watch each other and how we live and, and we're living in such a way in which we're speaking the scriptures into our lives, teaching and instructing one another, those two combinations of imitation and instruction will produce explosive spiritual growth in Christ's church. This is what God has told us he will do. So let us be very wary of being too self-reliant when it comes to our own sanctification. May we not buy into that lie, but may we realize that we need one another. That if we hope to grow in Christ, we must first and foremost be dependent upon Christ, who is the author of our salvation, but we also must be dependent upon one another as gifts that God has given us for the, the building up of our own spiritual lives. You are not the Lone Ranger. You need the body of Christ. You need the covenant community of the saints so that through their ministry, you might be edified, that you might be built up and instructed as you watch their example and as they teach you the word of God. You need your brothers and sisters to provide an example to you and to instruct you in the authoritative word of God that equips you for every good work. Let's pray together.